Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Stoked, man. Uh, for everyone, this is Chris Sika, and he started a company here in Austin called Austin Coding Academy and recently sold it. Mm -hmm. So I would love to learn more about the nexus of the idea okay. and how you got it to how you grew it and yeah. how you sold it. So please. Yeah, absolutely. In. I'll tell you it all. Um, so should I talk to you or talk to the audience? <laughs> you can talk to uh, either. <laughs> so we're actually making this into a video as well as an audio podcast. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so the genesis for the idea. Like a little closer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, so the genesis for the idea. Uh, Luke is my co-founder, Luke Philippos. And uh, been my best friend for a long time. We built a couple different businesses in the past together. Um, and the way we met was in college through a, uh, a sales and marketing internship. So we've been friends for a long time. And we, uh, we were in Europe uh, gallivanting around. And uh, we were introduced to this idea of chopping up your yard or your driveway um, and selling it to people as a parking space <clears throat> on like a bidding platform. And it sounded interesting. And there was a, there was a company doing it in London at the time. I think it was called Panda or something. Panda. I don't remember, but we were like, you know, let's, let's try to do that back in the States. So <clears throat> we came back to the States and um, we had a friend in Colorado who was a professor and she gave us a couple interns to start building it. And um, <clears throat> at that time, my understanding of web development and software development in general was, okay, I talked to three people. They all said I should build it in Python, whatever that is. So let me find some Python people and get them a book so they can just figure this out quickly. So long story short, it didn't get built. And um, <clears throat> the interns didn't work out. So Luke and I said, you know what? We're just going to build it ourselves. And uh, Luke is a little bit more on the tech side, and I'm more of your uh, people person. <laughs> I'm a people person. <laughs> okay. Um, so Luke started taking uh, some part-time classes, uh, coding classes, and uh, he approached the owner of this little school that had started and said, um, you know, I really think you guys could do something big here. And for whatever reason, they weren't interested in his approach. So he called me and said, Chris, I, I think we need to, I think we need to do, like, we need to either learn how to code or we need to do something around this space. And so we looked at uh, a school here in town that was full-time and everyone was quitting their jobs to learn how to code. And it was about $16,000 at the time. And we just thought to ourselves, there, there is one, no way I'm going to pay that kind of money. And two, I've got way too much other stuff going on during the day. I'm not quitting. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a job per se. Sorry, mom. But um, I, I wasn't going to quit my non-job and all the things that I did during the day. So <clears throat> we just decided, you know what? We're going to learn how to code. And then we're going to go back and make this car park app, this, uh, this car park thing. So we asked our friend, Joe, he was the only person I knew who knew how to code, um, to teach us a class at night. And then we were going to try to get other people to pay him some money. And then we were basically going to get to learn how to code for free. That <laughs> okay. was the idea. And uh, we put the website up. And um, I didn't even know enough about SEO at the time to realize that the name Austin Coding Academy was going to be so powerful. Um, honestly, that was just luck. 
But uh, we called it Austin Coding Academy because it, you know, was a literal name and we weren't the most creative people. And um, we put it up on the, on the site and our friend worked at iHeartMedia. So we had her help us build a radio ad and we spent, I think, between the two of us, eight grand signing mm-hmm. a, a lease for a, a class space and a couple grand on the radio ad. Mm-hmm. And then um, we expected, you know, like 10 people, eight people to sign up. And we would get our costs covered, and we would learn Python. Awesome. 36 people signed up. Uh, we had to open up another section of the class and find another instructor. And just very quickly, it was like, we're, we're probably not going to learn how to code this year. I think we should probably build this business. So um, that, was, that was started in the fall of 2014. So the LLC was formed in June, and uh, we signed the lease a month later. And then uh, we had people signed up for our August class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Luke and I, we like to go to San Diego and go surfing. We like to hang out. We like to chill for a minute. We don't really, you know, we wanted to have our personal time. So we initially structured it as a trimester program. So mm-hmm. there was only going to be three cohorts a year. And in the, uh, in the time between, we would just travel and, you know, enjoy life. So that's, that's the genesis for it. It wasn't intended to be a business. It was intended to be a way for Luke and I to learn how to code for free. I love that. <laughs> that that's such a creative way of, of uh, kind of financing your education is by <laughs> getting other people to, to finance it. But it's, it's brilliant. You, you kind of stumbled upon this really interesting business model. When did you realize that you really had something? Was it immediate, you know, right when you did that initial marketing campaign and you got more interest than you anticipated? Did interest kind of plateau at some point? Like, kind of walk me through how you got from, you know, the early formative, you know, days of Austin Coding Academy to the point where it's kind of this booming business. And, and yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple things happened. So Luke and I have a what we would call a high threshold for pain. Okay. Um, in fact, early on, we kind of learned from our, our summer internship in college that our competitive advantage was our ability to just deal with emotional pain, Mm -hmm. which uh, anybody that's listening to this that has a business is, you know, intimately familiar. So having a bunch of people sign up for something that we did basically no marketing for was um, a pretty clear demonstration of product market fit. Uh I say that with the caveat of I didn't know what the term product market fit was at the time. So my like caveman version of it was, I bet there's more people that will do this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I bet if we spent even more money on radio ads, we could get even more students to come learn this. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that uh, helped us with that pain threshold, at least with the school early on, because there were some setbacks for sure. We had uh, our lead instructor bailed on us the week before class started. Wow. So we had to basically root around and find somebody else. And through kismet and luck, the universe you know, put someone else in their place and it ended up working out really well. Um, I grew up in the Virgin Islands, and down there, the wealth disparity is even more significant than here. So from the very beginning, um, when we found out that the other full-time coding schools were charging $16,000, it it struck like a a chord with me because I was lucky enough to be able to go to private school my entire life, Um, but a lot of my friends were not, and I saw some consequences to that, especially in the Virgin Islands, just access to education is... Mm -hmm pretty much your only ticket out if you um yeah in a lot of ways so 
I wanted to have somewhere that anybody with any job could come and learn how to code mm -hmm. because very quickly, just as soon as you get into the industry, you realize that this is, this is the new vocation mm -hmm. and it is, it is the welding. It is the, um, plumbing. It is the electrical work of the 21st century. And it is the quickest way for someone to go from whatever class they're in to at least the middle class mm -hmm. and to secure some sort of like, you know, disposable income for, for their family and themselves. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we had a bigger mission behind us besides just learning how to code for free, the fact that the people we met in that first first cohort were, they, it was it was weird. I mean, these people weren't just like, yeah, I'm shopping around for a coding school. <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't at the point where it had been commoditized to the point where there are so many schools that people could price shop and look mm -hmm. around. We were the only option that these people could afford mm -hmm. that wanted to learn how to code. And yeah. they would love to have gone to the full-time school that had great marketing and great advertising and awesome branding. Ours was terrible. But we promised that we were going to do everything we could in our power to get these people a coding education at a price that they could afford. So the people that came to our classes were extremely non-traditional students. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite story is uh, a student named Luke. I'll leave Luke S. I'll leave his last name uh, anonymous. But um, he was let go uh, of his job. He's a father, three kids, or two kids, let go of his job the day he started classes. Wanted to back out because he needed the money. We were like, Luke, we will do everything we can to make sure that like this works out for you. And, and we meant it. And uh, he graduated. Um, he was making about 65000 when he was let go. He started at seventy, uh, And within six months, he was in Salt Lake City making $125,000 a year. Okay. Um, so these sorts of things started happening more and more. And that increased our pain threshold and our willingness to deal with the difficulties of a part-time educational model. Got it. Um, so how did we know that we had something? A lot of people signed up without us doing a lot of work. That's product market fit. Um, people at the end of class, we honestly, we didn't think there was going to be another class. We did exit interviews with everybody, uh, because it was important to us that people felt like they got what they paid for. Um, so almost all of them asked like, well, I'm just curious, like, what do I do next? And so we were like, well, have they learned enough to truly like, become developers yet some of them had some of them needed more help so we were like well i guess you know we went to college and you started off an intro and then there's like this intermediate so we'll just do that so then we made an intermediate class and almost all of them matriculated to intermediate and so um again i didn't have the parlance of lifetime value or acquisition costs but it didn't take a uh, genius to figure out that we were spending a couple hundred bucks to get someone to find us and sign up and, you know, over the course of six months, they had paid us, you know, five, $6,000 and more so they paid it up front. Mm. So it was like another term I didn't have then, but it was literally a negative cash conversion cycle where they were literally paying all of our expenses up front and front loading all of that. So it became apparent very quickly that with very little effort, more and more people were signing up. People were very grateful for what we were doing. Um, we showed up to every single class. We shook every student's hand at every single class, which again, didn't have the parlance at the time, but that was user experience testing and auditing and mm -hmm. finding product market, like all the things that they talk about in lead startup type books. Like yeah. we were just doing that because we wanted to make sure people didn't get screwed mm -hmm. and got more than they paid for. So.
That's awesome. Hopefully that answers the question. It does. It does. I'm curious how you ended up scaling the business because it's, if you go to every single class, I imagine there's a certain limitation as to what you and Luke could do to yourself, yourselves directly. Mm -hmm. So how did you grow it? Absolutely. So a pivotal thing happened um, during exit interviews of our third cohort. Uh, we interviewed a, a gentleman named Chris Lofton and uh, we asked him, so how was class? And he said, um, you know, class was okay. Um, you've got a great thing here, but you're not doing it very well. And it could be a lot better. And it was very similar to what we had, that conversation we had had with that other school a long time ago. And so we were very like aware that if someone gives us constructive feedback and it's in the right vein, then we should take heed. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, I said, well, what should we do about it? And um, he's like, well, if, if it were me, I would do this, this, and this. I'd set up lesson plans. I'd have these testing rubrics. I'd do this, that, and the other. He was a, a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, all right, well, why don't you do it? How about we just pay you and you'll do it? Hmm. So um, we paid him part-time, and he came in and worked in the evenings and helped us refine our curriculum. And very quickly, it went from, I don't know how any of the students are doing, until I talk to them face-to-face -face and ask them how class is going, which if anyone's done opt-in surveys, those have a ton of biases in and of themselves. Um, so people would say they were doing well, and then the next week they'd be lost, just like mm -hmm. the opposite of scalable, just a big, mm -hmm. messy monster. Mm -hmm. And um, once these rubrics and these testing platforms and all this stuff started getting um, initiated, like it became very easy to check in on dashboards and see how people were doing and figure out if people had done their homework. And I mean, the first... The first couple months when we started the school, I called people every Friday and asked them if they'd done their homework. That was how we started. Hmm. Um, anyways, we, we'll get into all that later, but uh, Chris Lofton, we hired him. He fixed a lot of stuff. He had a lot of vision, and eventually we were able to bring him on full-time with uh, cash flows. So we were able to afford him. And then I remember the very first time Luke and I stepped out of a class. We were sitting in the back of the class uh, over at a co-working space called VUCA on South First. And... Class seemed to be going well, and we didn't have to fix anything or step in or solve any issues, so we uh, we went and got tacos, <laughs> <laughs> and we sat there, and I imagine it's a lot like dropping your kid off to the first day of school, where you're yeah. like, all right, I guess they're not dead. <laughs> so um, we went and got tacos, and we came back, and the class went great. That's excellent. So that was the first time that I experienced abstracting myself from the operations and uh -huh. going from... Uh, what at my company now we define as um, going from a, an operator stage business to an asset stage business where mm -hmm. you can actually step out and it still creates value. Mm -hmm. So um, that happened. And then um, slowly we were able to bring in more and more help, just people that we needed. We brought in someone that did admissions for us instead of Luke and I taking all the calls. Mm -hmm. uh, we brought in someone to help with scheduling. We brought in somebody to help with more curriculum. We brought in... Um, Again, Lofton came in full-time as our director of academics. Mm -hmm. And so slowly we started to add layers and layers that separated us from direct operations to management, and eventually we were able to make it to where we were just on the board. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that took three or four years. How did we scale? Um, I bankrupted the company a couple times, so that was fun. Um, what happened was, uh, in my infinite wisdom, I had gone through all of our books and realized that it cost us somewhere around $25,000 to get the first one started here mm -hmm. in Austin. Uh, that was the marketing spend. That was the rent initially. Um, that was out-of-pocket expenses that weren't financed by students necessarily. Mm -hmm. 
So <clears throat> I thought, well, the math should be easy. If I want to open up in another city, I just need $25,000. And uh, that, that math isn't true. <clears throat> there are some complexities there. So I took out a loan uh, with a company called Able Lending mm -hmm. uh, for 125 grand. And um, we opened up in a couple other cities and it didn't work. We didn't know what our secret sauce had been. We tried to replicate exactly what we had done here in Austin. Hmm. We were going to meetups. We were sponsoring stuff, and it just wasn't hmm. was not clicking. And we didn't understand what was happening. But very quickly, we realized that if you sign a lease for a space, even if you don't run classes out of it, you still got to pay the lease. Hmm. So um, that didn't go great. We had to scale back, and then we were restricted on cash flows because of the fixed payments to these spaces. And so we had to run really lean, and it hmm. kept us from expanding really quickly. Um, and then uh, we brought in a outside CEO. Um, that didn't work out very well. Um, so we had to replace them. So we were able to get to the point where we could hire a CEO, step out of the business. We got a call saying, hey, we're not going to make payroll next week. So we stepped back into the business, had what we called Red Monday, which is where we let go of like seven people. Hmm. It was terrible. Um, and obviously the CEO was let go as well. Luke and I stepped back in to operate. And uh, <clears throat> just got back to the basics, leaned the team back out to the people that were absolutely essential. And what I found, both from that experience and future experiences with clients that we work with now, a lot of times, once a company gets to a certain headcount, letting go of some people can be really healthy. And we've seen productivity rise mm -hmm. um, once just some of the... I don't know, processes are removed or mm -hmm. just excessive meetings that don't need to be happening start getting taken out. I don't know what it is sure. specifically. But um, so then we reestablished the business, got everything stabilized. We had a quick uh, fundraiser from some friends and family that bailed us out. We literally called them on a Friday and said to these six people, like, we need 70 grand by Monday to make payroll. And uh, it's risky, but here's the valuation. And here's if you want to do it, I can't guarantee it's going to work out for you. And they all did it, and they all wrote us a check. And on Monday, we had payroll, and then we had another cohort starting, and they front-loaded the expenses again. Um, and at that point, we were like, wow, okay, we've learned a lot. Let's take a second and figure out what we keep doing wrong. And um, that's where we realized that our financial acumen were just lacking. Mm. Um, and we needed a lot of help with understanding the mechanics of the underlying business. Mm. So um, that's what ultimately like you know motivated me to go into, into my life now. But... Um, got it back on track, brought Lofton in, Chris Lofton in as the CEO. He had been with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. He had a great vision. And then we started to, um, started to scale more responsibly and uh, set actual capital budgets around initiatives and look at the risk-return ratios and see if it actually made sense, that sort of thing. Very interesting. So the, uh, one of your students became, one of your employees became the CEO. Yeah, Absolutely. That's awesome. I just think that's a, an amazing way to do it. <laughs> you know, there's no better, like, intimate knowledge of the product than yeah. someone that was a user. Talk to me about bringing in an outside CEO. I think there's a lot of lessons that could be had there. You know, for some of the some of the companies that, uh, you know, we create the show for, it's for folks who are, you know, oftentimes first-time entrepreneurs. Maybe they are, you know, they created a they inherited a family business or something, and um, they're thinking, how can I scale this? Maybe I should bring in somebody, you know, wiser or who has more experience in a certain market. What was your process of bringing somebody on 
why didn't it work out? Wow, that is a wonderful question. And um, it's a great problem to have. So I hope that most of the audience gets to experience this problem at some point, because if you are considering bringing in um, outside talent, then you have some stability of cash flows and some margin that you're able to work with to invest in somebody else. So obviously that's a great spot. Um, the, the thought process for us was let's find someone who's done this before and done it really well. And, uh, let's put them in place and let them just run this thing and we'll just sit back and collect cash. That was, that was the logic, at least for me. I can't speak for Luke. Um, turns out there's no free lunch. And, um, essentially what happens when a company brings in a C-suite person you, you, you go to a different role. So you're no longer the C-suite or whatever you were before. You're now officially a board member. Mm -hmm. And now you are the board and the board has roles and responsibilities as well. And I didn't understand any of that at the time. So for me, we brought the CEO in and thought everything's taken care of now. And didn't do a very good job on ramp up. Didn't do a very good job of auditing financials. We would just check in once every couple of weeks and say, how are things going? Mm -hmm. And it was just really immature. And I don't fault us. We didn't know any better. And um, I'm glad that things worked out the way that they did. But um, what I learned about being a board member is that once you put someone in place that has a chief responsibility and... Um, ability to make hiring, firing, and other material decisions about the, the future of your business. Um, you know, the board spends most of their time just looking at the numbers and making sure that things are playing out the way that the C-suite says that they are. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I got that call, you know, six months later saying we weren't going to make payroll. A board should never have that happen. That is a total sign of my inability to be a board member at the time. You know, I should have seen in week two that for whatever reason, our cash balance was lower than the historical average. It's just not something that I knew you did mm -hmm. at the time. Um, but the thinking was, if this person had scaled a similar business model, they could probably do it with this one as well. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a lot of times bringing in what I understand to be the case, the majority of hired gun CEOs or C-suite executives tend to be from larger organizations as a result, they tend to have a much more uh, buffered uh, expense account. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to make decisions that are a lot more macro and probably solid and sound strategically, but uh, don't reflect the reality of the cash flows of the business at mm -hmm. this size. So we had someone that didn't understand that all of the numbers in the bank accounts were missing like two or three of the zeros that they were used to having. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, how we ended up in that situation. So... Um, for, for bringing in outside talent, it's the other thing I learned is that there's probably nobody that's going to do a better job than you. Mm -hmm. So accept that when you hire that person, uh, you're making a trade-off. Mm -hmm. And I know for, for Luke and I, you know, at the, at the time we had lost our, we'd just been in the trenches for so long that we had lost our creativity. We had lost our like really strong motivation and we didn't want students to suffer as a result. So we brought in fresh blood. And uh, Chris Lofton ended up being one of those exceptions to the rule where they were far superior at the role than we were. That being said, um, you know, he also had shortcomings of his own, but at that time we knew what a board was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to bring in, you know, strategic relationships, introductions, overview of finances, make sure that the accounting team was providing the right data so that he could make good decisions. Like all this stuff that the board should have been helping with all along. Mm -hmm. um, 
So when you bring someone in from the outside to be an operator, you don't assume that it's going to happen quickly. It is a slow transition, and yeah, you're going to have to help still. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really good context. I'm curious. So if someone were, you know, in your situation, thinking of bringing in somebody outside in to, to lead the operations, what advice would you give them? So it all starts with why. Okay. Um, sorry, Simon Sinek. Just stole that from him. But uh, it all starts with why, uh, meaning why are you bringing in this outside help? Be very clear about that. If, um, if you're doing it because you think that you're going to be able to take a vacation, it's probably not the case. Um, if you're doing it because somebody brings something to the table or a paradigm or like specific skill set that you don't have, awesome. But usually people, I see people almost as like a tool set and they have specific tools that they're really useful for. Unfortunately, the more specialized somebody becomes or the more um, sharp they are in one area, the more dull they are in other areas. Mm. And so you have to see them in the, is it gestalt? I don't even know how to say that word, but you have to see them in the big picture of what role are they going to play. And usually if you're going to bring in someone at a small business, let's say we're in the sub 10 million revenue range, you know, your head counts anywhere from five to, I don't know, 15, 20 people. Um, that person probably isn't a complete picture. Otherwise they would have started the business themselves. So what are you going to do or who else are you going to bring in to support this person in the role that, that they're meant to be in? Are they a very good finance strategist? Are they very good at acquiring competitors? Are they very good at sales and marketing? Well, whichever one they're really good at, they're going to need someone to watch their back on the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And either you're going to do that as the board and accept that now, or you're going to need to spend a little bit more on OpEx to make sure that somebody's watching them. Mm -hmm. So. I imagine that some of these companies don't have a, necessarily a formal board of directors. Most of them don't. And in fact, the business I'm in now, we act as a, a fractional CFO, COO for companies in the small market, sub $25 million in revenue. Almost none of them have an official board. They may have a board because when they sign the, uh, um, the letters of uh, art, articles of incorporation at the Secretary of State's office, they, they had to assign one. Right. Um, but they don't actually have a board in the... Uh, in the way that we're thinking of it, mm -hmm. and so that's one of the uh, it's one of the things you have to wrap your head around, which is that the business is actually made up of you've got your employees, and these are the operators in the business, the people doing the day to day. You've got usually management layer, and a lot of times when you're in the operator stage and you're just kind of getting off the ground, you're all three of them, right? You are the employee the manager of yourself and you're writing the checks and deciding on the strategy and when to distribute some of the draw to yourself. So you play all three roles and then eventually you get to hire people that help you with the stuff here. So then you become a manager and you figure all that out and you realize that maybe you're either really good at it or bad at it mm -hmm. <laughs> as the case may be. Um, but if you are going to move into a, a, a layer of management between you and day-to-day -day operations, you will need to develop, um, a new skill set around being a board member and tons of free resources online about how to at least get started down that path. But anybody that started a business, you know, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. So I always ask people for help and I ask people that were on boards like, well, what does this mean? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah. So for someone considering bringing in a CEO, would you recommend that they first establish a board of directors, a functioning operational board of directors that can oversee 
I have a, I have a um, divisive opinion on this. Mm. I've seen a lot of people assemble a board of directors that's incredible and then never sell anything. Hmm. I've seen people spend a year building out an advisory board or a board of advisors or a board of directors or whatever the board is, and they haven't moved any product. Or they've sold the same amount of product for the last trailing 12 months. It's just like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand what you're doing right now. So um, I don't spend a lot of time on building my board. I spend a very small amount of it, mm-hmm. although strategic. And man, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, we tried to build a board. That being said, we tried to build a board We didn't really know what we were asking for at the time. We didn't, I don't even think we had the capacity to use their advice. And the people that we picked were so upmarket from where we were that it wasn't even applicable anyways. So just when you're in the trenches of these small businesses, like it's just so wild westy that Mm -hmm. you can, you can go to the VP of whatever at fortune, whatever company, and they're going to give you some advice. But like, unless they've poured over your, financial statements and your org structure and understand the industry. Like I, f- I find it difficult to believe that the information is going to be any more than like relatively valid. Got it. I'm just trying to think. So what's the solution? It doesn't seem like there's a one size fix for, for all of this. I'm just thinking, you know, what advice could we give to somebody? Cause it's, you know, we provided some warnings around bringing in an outside CEO. How do we address them? How do we address them? You yeah. know, I mean, I have my bias given the industry yeah. I've chosen to be in. Yeah, maybe there's. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just wondering if there is a certain revenue bracket where it's imperative that the entrepreneur, the business owner, just kind of hunker down and grow it themselves mm. before they are able to form a board of senior level people that have the ability to influence the business given their industry expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that for sure. Um, you got to demonstrate product market fit, whatever that is for you. Every industry's got their own hurdle for that. Um, for most of the companies I, I I work with, generally, if you're able to spit out half a million dollars in revenue a year without really spending much on sales and marketing, I would consider that product market fit. Then it's a question of how big is the opportunity, how big is the space, what is your growth story. So. I really like the idea of having a growth story in a qualitative format before you go to the numbers. Um, but once you have a qualitative growth story, like what is my growth story? You can then map that into numbers and say, well, what would that actually look like on a month over month basis or a year over year basis? And unfortunately, until you're at, depending on the industry, I don't know what the gross margins are for the listeners, but until you're at, say, let's say you're a typical business, you're doing $500,000 a year in revenue. You've got, uh, I don't know, net income is, say, 20%, okay? So you got $100,000 left at the end of the year to play with. You could spend it all on one headcount to come in and run the business for you, which I see in the restaurant business a lot. They bring in their GM, GM runs the business, eventually the GM gets a piece of the company, and then that portfolio, the owner of that business, steps out and goes and starts another one, and they've got seven or eight GMs running a nice little business. That's one model. But that $100,000, it's about capital allocation at the time. And so, man, if, if you're doing half a million in business, you could either get one person 
or you could say hire a like a pretty good marketing person for 60 65 and spend the other 35 on ads that if you're getting a return on spend of like three to one you've re like you've replenished that hundred thousand dollars you know before before your margin almost immediately mm -hmm. and you've also learned a little bit about marketing and you've got the product market research that you're getting from that spend mm -hmm. and you're getting analytics and you're building your audience like there's just such better uses of a dollar mm -hmm. when you're at a small size mm -hmm. than to put someone else in and step out. Mm -hmm. Just my opinion. Once you get to a million in revenue and you've got, say, 15, 20% margins, 150, 200 grand, maybe you put somebody in at 80,000 with some kind of bonus for hitting targets. But you, again, you're going to be the board, you're going to be watching them, and the rest of those dollars need to be accretive. You need to spend them on things that are going to move the needle. And the more you take out of the business by giving it to a management that you could easily be doing, um, the less opportunity you have for, you know, po positive, you know, uh, net present value, uh, projects is, yeah. I, when you're small, I think you just have to grind it out until you get to a million or so, and then start talking about bringing people in. Um, but I've only seen so many businesses and I'm a young guy. I, like no, to I, think. I love that answer. <laughs> um, that being said, you know, if you do get to the point where you're at a million dollars in revenue and you've got, um, you know, in line with kind of the, the audience that, that you guys work with in, in your industry, if you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars in earnings, that's valuable to other businesses. And there's a chance that if you were bolted onto their platform, that could be turned into $400,000 in earnings with a save on OPEX, right? So um, it doesn't mean that you, it's small potatoes still. You could be worth even more money to somebody else than you are yourself. <laughs> so that's something that's important to consider as well. So that's a great segue. Just throw in, that in there. No, no, no. That's a great segue into talking about the actual acquisition. So walk me through, you, you brought in this uh, Chris Lofton, mm -hmm. uh, customer employee, then CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me, how did you guys get from this good position of this good CEO? You guys are growing. How did you get acquired? Cool. So, oh man, before we had to raise money from friends and family, I called the as many people as I could that owned coding schools. I literally just went online and I reverse searched, looked up people's phone numbers that owned coding schools all over the country. And I called them. They probably still have voicemails from me. I apologize. But I called them and said, like, I will sell this school to you right now. Mm -hmm. Like, for whatever debt I have. Because I had personally guaranteed all the debt. Mm -hmm. And, I was, and you, nobody answered. I had actually had one group call me back. And they were like, well, we'll think about it. <laughs> no one really wants to buy a business that's calling like that. Right? Yeah. I didn't know that either at the time. Um, so we were like, you know, we got to hunker down. There's value here. We can, we can do this. So we raised the money from the friends and uh, we decided after our debacle with the previous CEO, that not working out with the, I just, I'd seen so many companies sell to someone bigger and they either get uh, shelved, their product gets shelved, meaning retired, or they get um, covered up or uh, in a lot of cases they got chopped up or, you know, whatever, a lot of the negative stuff we associate with private equity or whatever. Um, but I've also seen win-wins. I've seen companies that were better off as a result of the acquisition. And so I kind of have a, a little bit of a stoic philosophy, which is that I'm only on earth for a while. I'm going to die. So what do I do to like maximize my usefulness while I'm on earth? Um, 
we had spent, you know, four years at this point building something that had changed a lot of people's lives. So to just hack it up for some cash, that didn't really seem like the move. Um, so uh, I was actually, you know, your network is your net, net worth, Mark. Um, <laughs> I got a call from a buddy from college uh, that I tried to recruit to go do this stupid summer sales and marketing thing with Luke and I, and he, he declined smartly, but uh, he's an iBanker now, and he called me and said, actually, I just interviewed with a, a, a guy in Austin. He said he wanted to meet Austin Coding Academy. He's been trying to get in touch with you guys, but doesn't know how to do it, or just hadn't been able to, maybe gone to my spam or something. So I got this email. Um, from this guy Thomas, and Thomas said, uh, I'd love to meet you guys and just kind of hear what you're up to. And uh, we met with Thomas, and it was, we weren't ready for a transaction to occur. Um, so this was, the, the actual transaction occurred this summer, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I met Thomas a year and a half before that. And him and I, we saw eye to eye, we were very clear on doing right by people he, his company had a mission of eliminating student debt in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, they had, he was a, a dentist in a past life and had built a dental training school. So he understood the space and working with people with limited means to help them increase their exposure to options. So him and I saw really eye to eye on the fact that like, if we don't give enough people a chance to build like, you know, um, useful skills, like the country's in trouble, you know, in our own little way, how can we help? And um, just an awesome guy. Uh, we were both really interested in finance. We both love to talk about business. We both love education. And, uh, you know, he was like, you guys are mm, a little too small. Like, just not a good fit right now. And I said, and I think this was like, this is one of the, the, my favorite tools that I use today and have always used, which is, what would it take for you to be interested in working together? And I just asked him. And he laid it out because he was an honest guy and, knew exactly what he needed to, to continue his mission. Mm-hmm. And he said, you need to be a platform, and here's how I define it. I was like, well, what's a platform? Like, what, you, what is that? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, this is a platform. And he explained what a platform was, and he sent me articles, and kind of like almost helped groom me into an entrepreneur that I am today. And uh, so I came up with a list of what it meant to be a platform and how we would have to prove that Austin Coding Academy could be that platform. And in a short time, we built out the management procedures necessary. We built the financial controls necessary. We put the visibility into the metrics and KPIs necessary to do that. And then we finally secured our first big corporate contract. And then we got another one. And then we signed a deal with um, a big university in Texas to prove that we had the chops to go, you know, integrate to a bigger system and be, you know, a distribution channel for them. And I came back to him and I said, here's, here's, the, here's what we've done. I think we're a platform now. And here's how much I need to feel like it was a good use of my time other than the, you know, helping people from a financial perspective. This is how much I need to get to feel uh, secure and to feel like I didn't waste a bunch of time just, uh, you know, paying for expenses myself mm-hmm. um, that I wasn't going to get back. And he said, all right, I think we can do that. Mm-hmm. So he went to his lawyers, came back with something. We took it to our lawyers. They came back with something, and then we made it work. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. And there was, you know, there's a little bit of negotiation, but yeah. what was beautiful about it is we had the same mission, yeah. and no one was trying to screw anybody, yeah. and everyone was just trying to get a win-win. And when you have that conversation at the start, oh, my God, it's just beautiful. Yeah, It's a beautiful thing. Just here's, here's what I need to make this work for me. Yeah. This isn't some, like, 
me trying to get you with a high number and then we negotiate lower. This is what I need. So yeah. here's the offer. Do you want it? Yeah. <laughs> I, asked this, I asked this question to all of our guests, but when is the right time to sell? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> When's the right time to sell? Um, there's two answers. There is the um, philosophical answer, and then there's the mathematical answer. The mathematical answer is that if you own a business, the majority of your net worth is more than likely tied up in a private illiquid asset that is um, technically private equity. And uh, you're probably overexposed to that asset class, and um, it probably makes a lot of sense for you to take chips off the table. But a good friend of mine also said, diversified wealth will guarantee an average return, but concentrated wealth is how you build a lot of wealth, right? So it's, I, I said it way, he said it a lot better than that. <laughs> Point is, you, you, can, you, you can build a lot of wealth by being in very concentrated positions, mm -hmm. but that's not for everybody. And when you get to the point where you're having trouble sleeping and you're not present with your family, again, I'm a stoic. You have so much time on earth. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's so many of those days that you can trade for value, and at some point it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, philosophically, if you still like what you do, why would you sell it? Mm -hmm. If you are at the point where it's clear that the business has a life of its own and it's no longer exciting and you're not like jumping out of bed excited to be there, move on, dude. Mm -hmm. You're going to die. Mm -hmm. Like, Do something else. Do something exciting again. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I did. Once I got uh, Lofton installed as a CEO with Luke's help, um, I went back to pursue my passion, which was finance. So I found someone that was a financial, what I would call like extremely intelligent financial person. And I said, give me something to do. I'll work for free. I don't care. I just want to learn. Mm -hmm. And that got me excited about getting out of bed. And that's how the next thing, came, you know, I love it. So that's when you should sell. <laughs> when you, <laughs> no, that's a, it's a good answer. It has a lot to do with opportunity costs, I think. Yeah. And, um, being self-aware about our limited time here. Yeah. Uh, question, was it a stock sale or an asset sale? It was a stock sale, mm -hmm. which was important uh, from a tax perspective. Okay. Why is that? I don't understand why. It's okay. My lawyer does. Okay. Um, mostly had to do, I believe, with capital gains mm -hmm. and um, an IRS code that I think is 1202. Mm -hmm. So small business qualified stock. Mm -hmm. is the term, I think, from the IRS perspective. So something something to do with those two mm -hmm. made it important to do that. Um, and then it also created a, an additional goodwill depreciation for the acquirer, mm -hmm. uh, which became a, a tax shield for them. Mm -hmm. Were there any surprises during the acquisition process? Yes. Mm -hmm. Biggest one was um, we thought, and this is me admitting a big whoopsie that we had, but that's fine. Um, big whoopsie on my part was I thought that we were doing a stock swap and it turned out there was a new entity created. Mm -hmm. um, that created a, a liability when I took on ownership of the new entity because it had a valuation. It wasn't a you know, 0. 0.0001 cent par value. So um, that was my fault for assuming that you know the controller involved in the transaction understood that. Um, that led to a much higher tax bill than I expected for mm -hmm. equity that may or may not be worth value in the future. So that was a whoopsie. 
and it was an expensive one, you know, one that could have bought a house, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure you have good counsel, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, and make sure that in, in a transaction, you have a, a, a legal um, a legal representation. Obviously, you're going to go into this with a lawyer. Generally, the law firm will ask if you have um, uh, a CPA involved. Mm-hmm. Your CPA gets paid to tell you everything possible, and you should not rely on them to tell you all of those things. You should ask every question you can think of and be as thorough as you possibly can. Because um, humans are humans, and things get busy, and you mm-hmm. forget about stuff. And so some details get overlooked. Some of them are more expensive than others. <laughs> so that was a big one. Um, what was really exciting, though, was to go from three email addresses to two email addresses. <laughs> that was really nice. I still checked my inbox yeah. my old uh, at ACA, yeah. and you know none of them were addressed to me after the first week or two, and it was just a weird feeling. <laughs> um, and it's it's a beautiful thing to watch it continue to grow without you know without needing me around anymore. It's really cool. How was the integration after the acquisition? It was weird. Um, I will say it's very weird to see your bank account change like that. Um, that's a very like surreal and interesting experience. It wasn't a crazy amount of money, but it was just you know more than I'd had. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was interesting about it was <clears throat> it's it's all people like I mean people were really all of my friends have been really really awesome about it. They've all like taken the time to ask what it was like and if I miss it and if there's anything that I miss if there's a void there and mm-hmm. um, yeah I don't know it's it's just cool to check in with the team and see how things are going. And some yeah. of my good friends still work there. Yeah, um, it's, yeah it's such a it's a very weird. It's like Twilight Zone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I find it so cool um, that you're able to do that because I remember meeting you. You know, when you first started Austin Coding Accounting back in 2014, yep. and you've come along come a long way. Yeah, and, and to to your credit, man, um, <clears throat> I I knew that I had always liked finance, and before we knew the school was going to be a thing. I went up and, and I I had read Security Analysis by Ben Graham and I had read Intelligent Investor and I thought it was some hot shot, whatever. Um, I went to interview with this RIA just to find out what it would be like to maybe be an asset manager. And mm-hmm. He listened to me for about 15 minutes and I dressed up and put a blazer on and he's like, no, you're not a good fit here. Mm-hmm. And he's just like deflated my sales completely. Aww. And so I, I somehow, uh, you know walked into a CTAN event and I sat down next to you and I didn't know who you were at the time, but I was like, well, that's, you know, pretty rich valuation for the company that was pitching. And, uh, I think you agreed. <laughs> and, um, I got the email back, you know, I emailed you afterwards and, and you were nice enough to go meet me at Medici for coffee and, um, continue the conversation and give me the hope that, you know, maybe if I stuck with it, I could eventually understand numbers. And, uh, you're the one who pointed me in the direction of simple model and all the stuff that I use as my early foundation. So, a lot of my career now is a credit to the fact that you took time out of your day to talk to some weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take credit for that. No, I mean, I, I love this stuff. Um, I learned as much from, from you guys as I, I hope I, I give back. So, um, Do you have any last pieces of advice for, for folks who might be considering selling their business that, that you could impart? Yeah. Um, start with really solid fi- financials. Get really good at making sure that your uh, accounting is 
solid, then do some forecasting, and then make sure that you have a growth story in place that you can recite pretty clearly, and then translate that into numbers and fact check it against your gut to see if it's really possible. And then if you need help, ask for help. Yeah. Always ask for help. Love asking for help. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was awesome.